Good day, everyone. It's good to be here with you. Um, and I'm awesome. Um, well, <laughs> I'm like thinking ahead of the words that I'm saying. It's great to be in this chapter because it is awesome. I got a mate who um, his kids affectionately refer to it as a story about muddy, muddy, they say at the dinner table because they're so excited to hear about it. Um, because it's just so good. It's such an awesome chapter. It's engaging, it's witty, it's funny. And I think it's beautiful as well. It's beautiful because we see the moment that a man really sees Jesus. He calls him Lord and he worships him. But ironically, for a chapter that's about receiving sight and seeing, it's a chapter that spurs me on to live for the unseen realities of Jesus instead of the kingdom of heaven. Unseen realities of Jesus seated in the kingdom of heaven, and a day coming when he returns. And I want you to be spurred on for that as well. Now, just quickly, I had a bit of change in tack after submitting the outline that you've got printed in front of you, so don't look at that. It's going to lead you astray. Don't, don't look at that. Look at the screens instead, and that'll be helpful if you're taking notes. Um, a bit of context as we head into chapter 9 is that in chapter 8, there's a theme that's brought up of Jesus being the light of the world. And chapter 9 is really continuing that theme. And it's been there actually since the start of John in chapter 1, Jesus as the light of the world. But in chapter 8, verse 12, we read, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. And chapter 9 is really, it's expanding this claim. And so in 9 verse 5, Jesus restates the claim. In verse 5 it says, As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And this chapter will show us really what it means for Jesus to be in the world as the light of the world. And that's what we're going to spend some time thinking about tonight. Because it could sound nice, right? Think of the restaurant with the warm ambiance, a bit fuzzy. Is Jesus the light of the world like that? But I think actually Jesus being the light of the world is not something we immediately expect. And here's what I think John 9 is telling us it is. This is my first point. Jesus being the light of the world is Jesus judging the world. We're going to start at the end of the chapter to see this, um, because the end is really the crux of the chapter. It's where everything in this chapter has been building up to naturally, right? And if we get this right, it'll help us understand the whole chapter. So pick up with me there in verse 39 and read with me. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment, in order that those who do not see will see and those who do see will become blind. So this is the crux of the chapter, and it's what it means for Jesus to be the light of the world. Jesus blinds those who can see, and he makes those who are blind able to see. Now, at first glance, this sounds just really backwards, unjust. If Jesus is making a judgment here, aren't judges meant to be fair? How can it be right that Jesus blinds those who can see? 
And to really get our heads around this, we need to know what kind of seeing and blindness Jesus is really talking about. And we get that as we just keep reading through the end of this chapter here. So in verse 40, some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and they asked him, we aren't blind too, are we? And we're just meant to hear scoffing in their voices loaded with sarcasm because if you look at the way that Jesus replies, he's definitely reading a claim to be able to see in their question. So in verse 41, he says, if you were blind, Jesus told them, you wouldn't have sin." But now that you say, we see, your sin remains. See, it's claiming to see while you can't see, that means your sin remains. It's like if someone claimed to be healthy while they were sick, they wouldn't see a doctor. That's exactly what Jesus is using when he says, the healthy don't need a doctor, but the sick do. Denying blindness means that the Pharisees' sin remains. Now, it's a terrible and tragic close to this chapter for the Pharisees because it shows Jesus' judgment on them of those who claim to be able to see becoming blind. And it shows that the blindness that Jesus is talking about is a spiritual blindness of sin, refusing to accept Jesus as Lord. So to come back to our question, how is it right and fair that Jesus blinds those who can see? It's because the seeing he blinds is a spiritual seeing that claims to see without the light of the world, Jesus. And this is sin. For the Pharisees, they claim to see. They think they have a light and that they don't need Jesus. For them, it was the light of the law as they interpreted it. For our world, it might be that they see by the light of a comfortable life. They don't need Jesus. They might see by the light of pleasure or the light of prestige, the light of another religion. But they're all fake lights and no lights at all. And it's this type of seeing by the light of something else without Jesus that Jesus blinds. And on the other hand, it's those who come to know that they're blind without the light of Jesus that Jesus makes able to see. The heart of Christianity is that there is only one true light of the world, and he'll have both these effects on people. Those who do not see will see, and those who can see will become blind. Let's see that worked out through this chapter. So you'll see the the first group of people, those who do not see will see. We're going to go back to the start of the chapter in verse 1. Read with me. As he was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples questioned him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. Now, if I had time, we'd think about the relationship between sin and suffering a bit more. We don't have time, and Jesus actually, he just gives us the reason this man was born blind straight away. So keep reading in verse 3. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. We must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world." So whatever follows here is a display of the works of God, and it's going to be closely connected with Jesus being the light of the world. So read in verse 6, after he said these things, he spit on the ground, made some mud from the saliva, and spread the mud on his eyes. 
Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he left, washed, and came back seeing. So how does this display the works of God so far? Well, firstly, we're meant to see that really clear connection between the sign and what it displays. The sign of Jesus healing a man born blind and Jesus being the light of the world. You can't miss that, can you? This man stops walking in a literal darkness because Jesus is the light of the world. And it's pointing to something spiritual that unfolds throughout the chapter, but there's two things I want you to notice about how it happens as well. The first thing is that this man doesn't ask to be healed. He hasn't said anything up until this point. He hasn't cried out to Jesus. Jesus just does these things to him. The second thing is that the pool that he's um, healed in is called Siloam, which we're told means sent. And the point here is that there's no magical properties to the pool that heals the man. It's not his obedience to being told to go that heals the man. It's because he was sent, sent by Jesus. Jesus heals him. And what these things are telling us is that we don't have the capacity on our own to respond to Jesus as we ought. We need Jesus, the light of the world, to heal us to do these things to us. See, Jesus doesn't come into a world that's aware that it's blind, eager to fix its problems. He comes to a world groping in the dark. That's the point all the way back in John chapter 1 in the prologue in verse 10. It says, He was in the world, and though the world was created through him, yet the world did not recognize him. So we know that when we do see When we do recognize Jesus, it's an act of grace and mercy from God that he makes blind people able to see. How amazing, how wonderful. Give thanks to God if you're able to see. Now you might be thinking, how do I know if I can really see or not? And I think the rest of the story helps us with that, but it's in the context of those who can see becoming blind. So the the last group of people that we'll look at is those who can see becoming blind, and we'll spend most of our time here. Following verse 8. His disciples and those who formerly had seen him as a beggar said, isn't this the man who sat begging? Some of them said, he's the one. No, others were saying, but he looks like him. He kept saying, I'm the one. Like he would know, right? He's the guy who was blind and can see. So in verse 10, therefore they asked him, how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes, and told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed and I received my sight. Where is he? They asked. I don't know, he said. Like, he was blind. How would he know where Jesus went? He only could see after he washed in the pool. This is amazing, right? So in verse 13, they brought the man who used to be blind to the Pharisees. Now, I don't think there's anything malicious here. It's not that they doubt him. They just think, wow, this is amazing. Let's take him to the Pharisees because, and see what they have to say about it because of all people, they should be able to see what's going on here. But before we move on, the narrator of the story gives us some helpful information that's going to flavor the way that this story unfolds. So in verse 14, we read, The day that Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes was a Sabbath. 
And of course, this is going to be a problem for the Pharisees because making mud and opening eyes, healing someone, are both considered prohibited work according to them on the Sabbath. So in verse 15, again, the Pharisees asked him how he received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, he told them, I washed and I can see. It's obviously a bit of a truncated version of the story. Verse 16, therefore, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a sinful man perform such signs? And there was a division among them. Now, just like the signs have been doing all the way through John, they should point to a reality of who Jesus is, that he's from God. But they're divided over whether they really think Jesus is from God or not. So in verse 17, again, they ask the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He's a prophet, he said. Now, from the Pharisees' point of view, this is going nowhere until they really nail something down. Was this man actually even ever blind? So in verse 18, the Jews did not believe this about him, that he was blind and received sight until they summoned the parents of the one who had received his sight. They asked them, is this your son, the one that you say was born blind? How then does he now see? We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, his parents answered. But we don't know how he now sees and we don't know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age, he'll speak for himself. Now his parents said these things because they were afraid of the Jews since the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him as Messiah, he would be banned from the synagogue. This is why his parents said, ask him, he's of age. Now, this is a pretty serious threat, not to be accepted in your local synagogue, to be banned, to be kicked out. This happened a bunch of times to Paul. Um, he got thrown out of synagogues, and essentially it's a way of saying, you don't belong here, you're not one of us, the true followers of the law of God. At this stage, it's pretty hard for the Pharisees to deny that this man was healed, but there's no progress on who anyone thinks Jesus is. So they turn to the man again and press him on who he thinks Jesus is. Pick up in verse 24. So a second time, they summoned the man who had been blind and told him, give glory to God. Essentially, cough it up. Tell us the truth. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether or not he's a sinner, I don't know. It's like he's saying, I'll leave the theology to you. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I can see. They asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? I already told you, he said, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You don't want to become one of his disciples too, do you? This is a really sharp, sharp question that the man asks. It shows that he's throwing his lot in with Jesus, and it's a deliberate jab at the Pharisees to get them to show their hand. What are they really aiming at? So in verse 28, they ridicule him. You are that man's disciple, but we're Moses' disciples. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but this man, we don't know where he's from. This is amazing, the man told them. You don't know where he's from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he listens to him. Throughout history, no one has ever heard of someone opening the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he wouldn't be able to do anything. 
Now, it's worth noting that this man's theology, it's not bulletproof, right? When Moses made his staff into a snake, so did the Egyptian magicians. But his instincts about Jesus are spot on. They're dead on. In verse 34, they say, you were born entirely in sin, they replied, and you're trying to teach us? And then they threw him out. The Pharisees have heard this man say that he's from God and not a sinner. But they reject what he has to say about God because he's born entirely in sin. And actually, this is a reference to him being born blind. It's like they've finally agreed that they believe he was blind at birth and has now been healed. Obviously, you can see. And instead of this pointing them towards Jesus, it turns them away from Jesus. If there's ever a picture of anyone claiming to be able to see and becoming blind, this is it. Of all people, the Pharisees should have been able to see. They were experts in the Old Testament. They should have remembered that the blind being able to see is a clear sign of the coming of the Messiah. And they had lost sight of the Sabbath law so that they even considered healing as a work prohibited. Instead of being amazed at this, they're suspicious. Instead of seeing the clear connection between the sign and what it says about Jesus, they're hardened against him. And this shows that even though truly seeing Jesus is a gift from God that he gives us, humans are still responsible for the way that we respond to him. The man believes Jesus is from God because of the sign, but the Pharisees entirely reject Jesus is from God because of the same sign. Jesus is judging the world by being the light of the world. He's making those who are blind able to see and those able to see blind. I think this has some pretty big implications for how we live in the world as Christians now. Firstly, when we share the gospel with people who don't know Jesus, we're sharing the good news of Jesus with them. We're not in control of the effect that it has on them, but we are responsible for faithfully sharing Jesus with them. Don't be bogged down in science versus religion or the Big Bang Theory or debunking other religions or worldviews. The main thing is Jesus. All those other things are adjacent to telling people about Jesus, who he is, what he's done to make forgiveness possible and how that's changed your life. And those other things are important. Faith is rational, but it begins with Jesus. The second thing is that we believe in Jesus and the reality of who he is, even though we can't see him anymore. Now, at the very start of this chapter, if you flicked back to verse 4, you'd see Jesus saying, We must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And Jesus is talking about doing the works of God while it's still day, which is while he's still in the world. And the day is over when he returns to his Father in heaven, and no one can work. And in one sense, Jesus' earthly ministry is over. In another sense, he's not finished with this world. He sends his Spirit, and the day is extended 
because his patience means salvation. And we live in that last day when we can't actually see Jesus anymore because he's no longer bodily on the world. And we wait for his return. To the world, we look like blind fools. We look like we're giving up pursuit of what the world values for some fantasy in our heads. But we live for the reality of the unseen. We live for King Jesus ascended, seated at the right hand of his Father in heaven, where he'll come again to judge the living and the dead. And it's the unseen Jesus that we witness to the world. And we do that by continually depending on Jesus to be able to see, to make decisions about what's what's important in life based on the reality of who Jesus is, to value the same things that he does, to seek his kingdom, to, to depend on him for our needs, to forgive from the radical forgiveness we've received and to flee temptation and to do all these things pointing to the light of the world so that others might see and believe. Some will be blinded, sadly, unable to see Jesus because they see by another light. Others will see because by the light of the world, they see their sinful blindness and confess Jesus as Lord. Now, to come back to a question I've raised earlier that's still unanswered, how do I know if I can really see or not then. And I think the blind man helps us as an example here because he's the best example of someone who believes the evidence of the sign. He knows he was blind and he can see now, but he still needs to to believe what the sign points to. Pick up in verse 35. When Jesus heard that they'd thrown the man out, he found him and asked, "'Do you believe in the Son of Man?' Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him, he asked. Jesus answered, you have seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking with you. I believe, Lord, he said, and he worshipped him. Now this, this is a beautiful moment. Just be captured by the wonder of this moment when somebody realises who Jesus is and worships him. How do you know if you can see? Do you worship Jesus? Is your life captured by the reality of who Jesus is so that your life is submitted to him as Lord? That means you live by no other light than the light of the world. Can you say this has happened for you? Well, if you can't, it begins by acknowledging that you're blind without Jesus helpless in sin, cut off from life with God, and that you need to be rescued and asking him for help and forgiveness, and then living with him as your Lord. And believing these things, you see the light of the world. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks that you've sent the light of the world into our world. We give you thanks that You've made us able to see. We couldn't do this on our own. We give thanks and praise for your mercy and grace. Father, please help us live our lives with Jesus as our Lord from this day on. In Jesus' name, amen.